Bonsoir, bonsoir. Ça va? Ça va bien? Welcome to come away with me to Paris. I'm so glad to see all of you here tonight. Now I have two two goals here for this evening. One is that I want to give each of you the sense of what it would be like if you moved to Paris as an expat. And two, I want to share with you some of the ways in which the Lord blessed us and met our spiritual needs while we were living abroad. So with that in mind, before we get started, I know that some of you in the room have been expats before. Expat means expatriate, that the person who lives outside of their home country. So just um, if you've been an expat before and you're here tonight, just raise your hand so we can just look around and perhaps some of you in the audience, if you see someone who's been an expat, you might want to talk to them about it afterwards. Anyway, glad you're here and come away with me to Paris. Now, if you were an expat living in Paris today, instead of it being All Saints Day, it would be Toussaint. Toussaint is much more exciting than All Saints Day because it's a 10-day school holiday and all of the expats are traveling somewhere right now. They might be in Normandy, they might be in Morocco, who knows where they are, but they're traveling and we're here tonight together and I'm glad we're here together. The first thing that people ask me when they hear about our French experience is, why did you go away and live in France for two years? Well, it's a pretty simple answer. The answer is because of this man right here. This is my husband, Sam Franklin. And when he was a boy, his family lived in Luxembourg for six years during the 1970s. Later on, by the time I met them, they looked back on those as some of the happiest days of their family life. And when Sam and I decided to get married, one of the things that he said to me was, I hope that someday our family can live abroad just like my family did. Now at heart, I am a traveler. I'm an adventurous person, so I liked this idea. But as time passed, it didn't seem like we would really realistically ever have the opportunity. Sam was a physician, a nephrologist, working here in Charleston, and that just didn't lend itself to being moved overseas. So I really kind of gave up on the idea, but Sam kept squirreling away money and sometimes we'd get in fights about money because he'd say, don't spend, you can't spend all that money I'm saving for our living abroad. And sure enough, one day during the 2013-2014 school year, Sam came to me and he said, we're at the point now where I can actually take a sabbatical from work for a year. And our children are all at a point that if we don't seize the day, it will be too late to take them with us when we go. I heard what he said, and it made sense, but I have to be honest, I was very nervous about the idea of leaving Charleston, because this is home, and really, let's be honest, there's no place like Charleston. But as we talked about it, I said, if we're going to live overseas, we discussed London, and I said, no, I really want to live somewhere where we can have a foreign language. And then Sam said, well, what about Vienna? Vienna's a great city. I had been to Vienna. I did not like being surrounded by German. And all of us in our family, four or five of us, had studied some French. So I said, listen, if we're going to even think about doing this, 
we're going to have to go to France. That's my bottom line. It's France or nothing. And Sam said that was fine with him, but even so, I still did not have an inner peace about leaving. I spent some time praying about it and soul-searching, and one day I had the chance to ask my spiritual mentor, Juanita Orman. I happened to be with her at St. Philip's for a healing prayer service, and afterwards I told her that my husband wanted us to move to France. Now, I totally expected Juanita to say, Pringle, you should not be running around France drinking wine when the Lord has your feet planted here in the vineyard. At that point, I was leading the Wednesday morning women's Bible study, and I felt very committed to that group. I was also writing a book, Hope in Healing in Marriage, which required that I interview couples who were going through a crisis in their marriage, and that they would tell me the story of how through their Christian faith, they came out whole and happy on the other side. Well, this required three things that I did not think could happen in France. Number one, it required people that were really living and breathing the Christian faith. Number two, it required people who would trust me enough to share their deepest, darkest secrets. And number three, it required people to speak English to me. So I had the fear that the book project would just die if we left the United States. So I'm telling this to Juanita, and Juanita says to me, Pringle, do you want to be the kind of wife who says no to your husband's dream? That got me. No, I do not want to be that kind of wife, I said. She told me, you said yes to your husband, and you tell the Lord if it's not his will for him to shut the door. So that's exactly what I did. I went home, I told Sam about the conversation with Juanita, and I said, I'm going to throw myself into this heart and soul, trying to work on the logistical details of finding schools, finding housing, figuring out if it's feasible, if we can really make this happen. And I'm going to trust that if it's not God's will, the doors will shut. This gave me a great peace. And as I began the hard work, doors opened. And after just maybe four or five weeks of this, I realized that we were going to France. We were very lucky because many of you know Elizabeth Dixon. She and her family had been living in Paris for four years. And Elizabeth had um, started a business helping people that wanted to move abroad, helping them with some of these issues. So we hired Elizabeth. She was a big help to us. And before we knew it, we had all of these things figured out, even whether or not we would take our cat. As you can see from the picture, Myrtle did move to Paris. So in August 2014, we landed in Paris, and this is what our new backyard looked like. Now actually, this is a public park, it's called the Champ de Mars, but I refer to it as our backyard because we lived about five minutes away, we didn't have any green space of our own, so this is where we would go to sit and read books or have a picnic or take a sun bath, just to get out of the building, basically. We were so excited to be there, but we soon discovered that living space in Paris is entirely different than what we were used to in America. Of course, I had been to France maybe five or six times on vacation, but I had always stayed in hotels. Living in an apartment in Paris is completely uh, a change, a total change-up. So, first of all, everything was so small. I felt a little bit like Alice in Wonderland. 
that I was so big and everything was so small. You can see from the picture this cafe table, Benton and I barely have enough room to eat at this table together. In our apartment, the drinking glasses were about this big. They were what I think of as orange juice size glasses. And that was the tallest glass in the whole apartment. The apartment was furnished, which meant not only did it have furniture, it came with sheets, it came with towels, it came with um, pots and pans and all of those things. So it was pretty much you could just walk in and live in it. But I, um, I had a little bit of trouble adjusting to the size of things. I'm going to show you what the apartment looked like. Basically, here's Sam sitting here with our, our brother-in-law is also in the picture. We had one room that was for the living space, and then we each had, we had three bedrooms. The bedrooms were small. The living space that we shared was a combination of the kitchen, the dining room, and the den. This is what the dining room looks like. You can see it's, it's fairly plain. And here is the living room. Talk about having a family draw close together. I mean, there was no place to get away from one another. And in this sense, it was really good. It was really fun. In our house in Charleston, sometimes someone can go upstairs and disappear for hours. You don't really see them. But in the Paris apartment, we knew where everyone was, even the cat, pretty much at every moment. The biggest challenge to living here um, logistically was that we only had one WC, one water closet, one toilet, one for four people, sometimes five people. If we had house guests, it about drove me over the edge. I'm going to be honest with you. I did not do very well with having one, only one WC. That was the worst part. Now the small living space for me required more concentration in the mornings. Many of you know that my daily habit is to get up around 6 a.m. and spend an hour in prayer. Back in Charleston, I could go downstairs while the rest of my family was upstairs. Even if they were getting off and moving around and brushing their teeth while I was praying, I had a private place to go. But in our Paris apartment, there was no privacy, there was no place to hide, and I ended up just using this chair that I pushed over by the window. And I would sit there with my eyes closed, focusing on God, praying silently, but, you know, invariably, there would be street noises. Our, our windows in our apartment were old. A lot of the street noises came in. So I would hear the delivery trucks in the morning rattling around and men, you know, making noise while they were talking to each other, unloading things, sometimes dogs going by and barking. And, of course, inside the apartment, my family would get up. If they wanted to use the facilities, they would come right into the room where I was to reach the bathroom. If they wanted to make coffee, they would come right into the room where I was. There were times where family members would even come in and turn on the morning news. After all the terrorist attacks we, we got where we really wanted to watch the news before we left the house in the morning. So imagine trying to have this you know, holy time while all these people are moving around you. So the way that I solved this problem by the grace of God was that I put a playlist on my cell phone of instrumental worship songs. I put on earbuds and I just stubbornly closed my eyes. That created kind of a cone of silence over me, and I was able to pray and concentrate. During our second year in Paris, 
I was really blessed because the Lord brought someone into my life named Rita. She was a parent at the school where Baker was going to school, the International School of Paris. Rita is a meditation coach. She grew up in Finland. She's a Lutheran. She loves Christ. But she trained me to meditate in a way that was consistent with my Christian faith. This brought a higher level of focus and concentration and peace to me, even though I was operating out of this little chair. But it was pretty remarkable. I want to talk to you a little bit about daily life. What would your daily life be like if you were suddenly living in Paris? Well, it really is true that you go to the bakery every morning. Sam is the one in our house who would go to the boulangerie and buy the bread, the hot baguette for breakfast. Baker usually wanted a pan au chocolat. The baker, the boulanger at our bakery's name was Franck. And Franck is kind of a, a sexy French guy, about 35. He has sha he shaved his head. He has a nice kind of shiny bald head. He wears a black leather jacket. He rides a motorcycle. And Franck loves the ladies. He has really got a certain glimmer in his eye whenever a young, good-looking woman comes into his bakery. So Franck never spoke English to us. For a year and a half that we were going in there, the first year and a half, every, every word that came out of his mouth was French, which seemed normal enough to us. But one day, um, Sam came home from the bakery, and he said, you will not believe what happened. Franck just spoke to me in English. I said, no, you're kidding. Frank doesn't speak English. He said, he does, he does, a little bit. So it turns out that when Sam went in, Frank looked up and he said, good morning. And Sam's like, oh my gosh. And then Frank goes, how are you? And Sam looked over and there was a very attractive young French woman in the bakery. And Frank is saying to her then in French, see, I speak English. He was showing off for this young woman. Sam thought it was a right. And after that, Frank never spoke any more English to us again. Another thing about life in Paris is that walking is a great pleasure, but it is also how most people get around. We did not have a car in Paris, so we were either walking or getting on the metro or riding a city bus. But walking is the preferred way when you can. Paris is a beautiful place to walk around. But when you're going on foot in the city, you will notice that people carry themselves and interact very differently than they do here in Charleston. For the most part, they don't want to interact with strangers. They're going to have body language that's very closed up. They're going to keep their eyes away from you. They're not going to look you in the eye. They're not going to smile at you. They're not going to say bonjour. If you're just passing on the street or if you just happen to be sitting next to one another on the metro, you really have a certain um, personal space around you that is different than what we have in the U.S. This lady, this very chic, older Parisian woman, is a good example of what I'm talking about. She has spent time making sure that she looks great, but she is not interested in meeting you on the street. Now, the people that we did meet and walk around with a lot were other expats. This is a picture of um, two of our best friends. They're actually originally from Seattle, Greg and Joanne. And one night, we went out to dinner with them, and we went up onto the right bank near Les Alls, 
And of course, we lived on the left bank near the Eiffel Tower. We went out and had a, a nice meal. And afterwards, we came out and uh, instead of just getting on the metro to go home, I said, you know, it's a nice evening. Why don't we walk towards our part of the, the city? And when we get tired of walking, we'll just hop on the metro. So we started out walking and we passed all these lovely cafes and people sitting there and we passed the street musicians and kept going and we passed, you know, the great cathedrals and churches where the spires were lit up at night and we found ourselves crossing the Seine and pausing on the bridge to look at the lights on the water and to look at the barges moving along and then the next thing you know we're over on the left bank and there's Hotel des Invalides with its gold dome lit up where Napoleon is buried. It's one of my personal favorite spots in Paris. Well, by the time that our walk ended, we had gone all the way back to our apartment building. We had walked an hour and a half. My feet were a little bit sore, but I had, was exhilarated by this beautiful walk. And I, I turned to Sam and I said, you know, if we were in Charleston, this would be as if we had gone to eat dinner out at Town Center in Mount Pleasant and just said, hey, why don't we just walk home back to downtown? It just doesn't transfer very well. When you are walking around, you're often pushing this trolley because when you're out buying things, uh, they go in the trolley. I always felt like I was a little bit clumsy with the trolley because the grocery stores in Paris are small, the aisles are narrow, people don't generally move out of your way. You have to actually sort of ask them to step aside and I just never quite got the knack of the trolley. However, the trolleys were indispensable. This is a picture of, um, we went to an event that they have twice a year in Paris where the boutique winemakers from all over France come to Paris. They have a convention. You can buy a ticket for five euros. They give you these little wine glasses and you go from booth to booth you taste the wine, you talk to the winemakers, you find out you know, what their philosophy is and what, you know, what their goals are for their wine. Basically, you just go around and drink great wine. So our, our goal, we're here with two of our, our friends who are Canadians. Uh, we said, we are going to stay until we've each filled up our trolley with wonderful wine. And when that's done, we're gonna get on the city bus and go home. So, this is a picture of Sam back in our kitchen in Paris. Needless to say, this man loves wine. Wine was part of our daily life in Paris, and he was very happy about it. If you're living in Paris every day, you're also going to be on the metro. I love the metro. Some people don't love it, but I love the metro. But I want to give you a little piece of advice. If you're ever on a platform waiting on a, on a train and you notice that the train is pretty crowded but one car is less crowded or almost empty, you need to avoid the empty car. One of our expats friends told me the funniest story. So she's on the platform, she sees the empty car, and she's like, oh, I'll go on that one because there's more room. It looks like there's just one other guy. She gets on one door, the guy's at the far end of the, of the train car, train leaves the station. The man gets up and starts moving in her direction. When he gets up, she can see that he has on a shirt, but he has on nothing else. He is completely naked from the waist down. And he's making his way in her direction, sitting down, rubbing his bottom, on each seat 
moving towards her, the naked man. So when the train pulled into the next station, she jumped up and got out of the car and switched into a different one. And she, and she said, I should have known better than to get in that empty car. Another daily part of life in Paris is the cafe. The cafe is an extension of the home. It is where you meet friends. It's where you have business meetings. It's where you go to do work. Everyone knows that uh, Ernest Hemingway wrote novels sitting at the cafe. In Paris, you have to buy something, okay? Uh, espresso, a croissant. But once you purchase something, you can stay there as long as you like. No one's going to chase you away. When we were in, in Paris, our French teacher, her name was Anne, she told us a funny story. She had grown up in Paris, and so she was in the habit of going to the cafes, but she did a study abroad in London because she was working on her English. So when she's in London as a young woman in her 20s, she thinks, okay, I want to go to the cafe. What's, what's the equivalent of the cafe in London? She thinks, oh, it must be the pub. So during the day, by herself, Anne would go sit there and smoke her cigarette in the pubs, and guess what? The men thought she was a prostitute. After she was propositioned three times, she stopped going to the pub. Okay, language. Everyone always wants to know. Parlez-vous français? This is the number one question, and you better not say no. I told you that I had had some French background, but it was schoolgirl French. When we moved to France, I was very naive. I thought that my French was better than it really was because this is my, um, my hen, Remy, and my French was about like Remy's. She's looking at this drink menu, this ardois, and she's deciding what kind of hot drink she wants. That was about the level of my French. But when we got to Paris and we started living there, we encountered situations much more complicated than ordering food. We had to get the cable hooked up in our apartment. We had to deal with the immigration people who really will only speak French to you. We had to talk about uh, like when the dryer broke in our apartment and the repairman needed to come. So we figured out we needed French language lessons and we went to a community center, which is a very cheap way, very reasonable way to get great language lessons. It was an hour and a half, three times a week, the entire class was in French. We learned a lot, we talked a lot, it forced us to speak. We still are not fluent at all. But I got to the point where I was okay forcing whatever came out of my mouth to come out and making it through pretty much any situation. Now, unfortunately, it was not pretty. And French is supposed to be pretty. It's a beautiful language. So I, I really always felt a little bit like maybe a seven or eight-year-old child. And the French were so kind to me. The Parisians were so kind to me. They often complimented me and told me, you speak great French, your French is very good. And they spoke to me as if I was perhaps an eight-year-old child. And I didn't tell them, unless they knew me, you know, like I was regularly in their shop or something. I didn't dare tell them, oh, well, I live here. Because uh, they probably thought I was a tourist. And compared to a tourist, yeah, I had pretty good French. But compared to someone who was living there and taking French lessons, I don't think I was picking up on it as quickly as I probably wished that I had been. Now, what does happen a lot in Paris is a franglaise. I love franglaise. 
I know um, that true French speakers probably look down on it, but basically it's a mixture of sometimes you're speaking in French, sometimes you're speaking in English, so we would speak a lot of English and just sprinkle the flavoring of French words in when we were talking to our other expat friends. This was normal for us. Also, when we'd go into the shops and we would try to speak French, if the merchants could speak English, they would often um, try to you know, answer us in English. If you like that, if that's helpful, that's great. There were days where I was happy because what I was doing was difficult. But if it was something I felt I could handle in French, I would just keep answering them in French and then let them know it's okay. You know, I may sound like I'm struggling, but just keep speaking French to me. So this little sign I thought was so funny because it's the cardinal rule in Paris and really in all of Europe that a restaurant or a hotel or a church, they're not going to let you use their bathroom facilities unless you are a customer. So if you want to use the bathroom, you're going to have to go in, sit down first at a table, order something. Then you may ask them where is the toilet, you may go and use it. But otherwise, you may not just pop in there like we often do in the States and use the facilities. And it can be difficult when you're traveling around the city and you're, and you're touring around. It's a good thing to know. With this sign, the toilet, of course, is in French. But they know that French-speaking people know the rules. So they wrote in English just for customers. Now, this is the inside of our bakery. And after a while, I knew the vocabulary of how to order things and ask for things. But there's also a certain choreography that goes with it. It's not just enough to know the words. Many of you have probably heard, but I think it's worth repeating. Whenever you go into a shop in Paris, in France, you must first go through this uh, formal greeting process. So you have to say, bonjour, if it's daytime. And if it's nighttime, you say, bonsoir, and you wait for whether it's the cashier or the clerk or the bakery guy to say bonjour, bonsoir back to you. At that point, you've made eye contact. You don't say it when you first walk in the door. You wait until it's your turn and you have their attention. After that, unlike in America where the customer is king, in Paris, the merchant is in control. So after you've done your greeting, then you just look at him or her and then he will ask you, how may I help you? At that point, you are able to place your order. But if you want to get more than one thing, you have to wait and place your order separately. So, for instance, you would say, I would like a baguette, please. He or she will go and get the baguette and bring it and then say, and what else would you like with that? Then you can say, du croissant, s'il vous plaît, du croissant. And then they'll go and they'll get that, and then they'll say, is that all or anything else? And you can complete your transaction. And you always finish off with saying, merci beaucoup, bonjourne, basically means have a good day. So those are the formalities, that's the choreography of it. It's a little bit different. I want to mention a quick word about the weather. In Charleston, of course, we have luscious, lovely, sunny weather. In Northern Europe and in Paris, it was a shock because nine to ten, 10 months of the year, you're getting this. You're getting dark, rain, cold, wet, 
about the time we had spent our two years in Paris, I had two pair of rubber rain boots. One to match these type of outfits and one to match these type of outfits because I wore my rubber rain boots a lot. I remember we didn't have a car. So if it was raining, even if I was going to take a bus or a metro, I was still having to get out in the weather and walk to the station, often waiting. So you pretty much kept an umbrella with you all the time. And we didn't let it stop us from getting out. We got really good at just saying, you know, this is the weather, we accept how it is, we're here to see the sights. So we would just put on the raincoat, put on the boots, and trudge along. Now, is this Paris, is this what you think of when you dream of going to Paris? Probably not. But this is what our neighborhood looked like. About nine months out of the year, okay? The gray sky, overcast, you know, this kind of, uh, this kind of look. This is it. This also, two, about two days a week when people could put out their garbage, it looked like this. All kinds of things were piled up in the residential areas. Sometimes I even saw toilets sitting out on the street, all kinds of broken furniture. And the worst thing is that the Parisians do not clean up after their dogs, when their dogs go number two. So as you're walking around on the sidewalks, literally, it's a landmine here and a landmine there, and you have to pay attention. At first, I was really frustrated by this, as most Americans are. Like, why don't people pick up after their dogs? It's disgusting. And finally, a French uh, friend told me that it was in the Parisian mentality that they pay taxes, they're people that are hired to clean up the streets and take away the garbage, and that those people should also be scooping the dog food. Well, it just doesn't work out real well. One day, one of my friends saw an old lady, very beautifully dressed, in the shop to Mars with her poodle. And the poodle stopped to do his business, and the old lady pulled out a little bit of tissue. And my friend thought, oh my gosh, this lady is going to actually clean up after her dog. But instead, she wiped the dog's bottom and then threw the used tissue on the ground next to the dog poop. So this is real. So there are times when you feel frustrated living in France. The weather, language barriers, the close nature of the people, these attitudes. When this happens, and it will happen, David Leibovitz, who is a cookbook author and American living in Paris, says there's a perfect remedy. You go to the outdoor market. When you're in the outdoor market, you remember why it is that you love France. There is no better way to buy food than to go to the market. And it's fun just to walk around and see the beautiful flowers and see some of the exotic foods that are for sale, to see some of the artisanal cheeses. In France, there are 1,200 types of cheese. And believe me, I did my best to sample every single one of them. Now, before we moved to France, I was concerned about finding Christian fellowship and finding a church. I had heard from this you know, vantage point here, Charleston is the holy city. I had heard people say, France is very dark spiritually. And I knew that Europeans in general had a secular mindset and that many people were agnostic or atheists. So I was concerned about this. But I want to tell you that there is a vibrant 
faith community in France, both within Catholic churches there, most of, you know, traditionally France is a Catholic country, and within some of the Protestant churches that have been brought in by Americans. There are, there is a real remnant of, of believers. So we ended up attending the American church in Paris. It has a beautiful green spire, and it's situated right on the Seine. It was the most international congregation that you could imagine. Even though it's called the American Church in Paris, basically it's everyone's church who wants to have a Protestant faith that's non-denominational, where English is the language. Within this church, we met people from all over the world. It really was living and experiencing, being part of the universal church, every nation, tongue, and tribe. In the beginning, it was a little bit hard for me to get used to it. The first summer that we were there, 2014, was the summer that the Ebola virus was so widespread. And we were always sitting, for some reason, in the African section. And in our church, people would pass the peace. And here I was passing the peace with people that might have just gotten off the plane from Sierra Leone. I had to just swallow hard and pray to the Lord that we would be protected. It was just it was pushing me to expand my thoughts and my, myself, basically. Um, we met so many interesting people, and we learned more about what it's like to worship in other countries. One of my favorite stories came from Tian Tian. Tian Tian is a young Chinese girl. She's about 23. And when I met her, she had been in Paris for nine months. She was there doing a study abroad program. Tian Tian was in a Bible study with me. And one day, after the Bible study, she said, this is the first Bible study that I have ever been able to go to. I was like, how can, how can that be? And she said, I grew up in an atheist home. Everyone I knew was an atheist. But Tian Tian learned to speak English. And one day in China, she became friendly with some English-speaking people who happened to be Christians. They shared the gospel with her. Tian Tian accepted Christ. She wanted to grow in her faith, but she didn't have any resources available to her. She tried to go to the um, churches in China where English is the language, churches that are for foreigners, that she wasn't allowed in. The government doesn't let Chinese come into those churches. There weren't any places to buy Christian books or to buy Bibles. She couldn't turn on the radio and hear you know, preachers talking. She, even, the, even the internet in China is strictly controlled by the government. Somehow, Tian Tian managed to get hold of three podcasts of sermons by Rick Warren, the American preacher. And she listened to those three sermons over and over again for two years. Every time she went to work, she had to ride the bus. So on the way to work and back, she listened to these sermons. That was all she had until she came to France. And then, finally, she was able to go to a church, an English-speaking church. She felt that English was her spiritual language, and be with other believers, and worship openly, and go to even things like Bible studies and buy books. It was so humbling to me, because here, Tian Tian saw France as a place of offering her a wealth of choices for her spiritual growth. And coming from the United States, I had been feeling the opposite. It really gave me a new perspective. Another one of um, my prayers that was answered was having a prayer partner. This is Mona. 
And Mona had a child at the same school, the international school, where Baker went. Several years earlier, Mona had started a Moms in Prayer program at this school. At the time, there was only one other parent that wanted to pray with her, because most of the parents at the school, come, or they come from 80 different countries, they come from all kinds of backgrounds, very few of them are Christian. So Mona had one prayer partner, that partner eventually moved away, and Mona was left without anyone, so she couldn't really have a Moms in Prayer group. She was praying and praying for the Lord to send her a prayer partner. After months and months of praying, Mona began to get discouraged, and she went to her husband one day and she said, I think I'm just going to stop praying about finding a prayer partner who will pray with me for the school because it's just not happening. And her husband said, Mona, this is your heart's desire. Keep bringing it to the Lord. Don't give up. Well, little did either of us know, but all those months when Mona was praying for a prayer partner, it was the period of time when Sam and I were trying to decide, should we move to Paris? How could we make it work? And getting all of the logistics worked out. So one day when I heard this from Mona, I started to cry. And I said, Mona, it's like you prayed to God, and it was because of you that he put a net over me and, you know, lifted me up and brought me to Paris. So we met very early on after our move to Paris by, by the good fortune and God's will. We began praying together weekly. And we prayed that we would have more people to join us, that the Lord would bring more Christians. And wouldn't you know, oops, by the time I left, when my two years was up, we there were seven of us in the prayer group. And we came from all different points of the world. But another thing I have to mention about Mona is that it was because of her that I was able to finish the book. When we moved to Paris, the Hope and Healing book, I, by that point I had interviewed and found seven couples. But I needed eight. I needed a lot, one more to have enough for the book. And I just said to the Lord, I don't know where you're going to find someone in Paris. But Mona actually had a friend, Veronique, and it was through Mona that I found someone who was willing to be the final chapter of the book. And it's a very dramatic chapter of forgiveness. So it was amazing. Now I have a picture here of a guardian angel. There were many times in Paris when I prayed for the Lord to put his guardian angels around us to keep us safe. And I, I saw evidence that he did. One day Sam and I were standing on the street and we were talking and he was holding a map and he was trying to show me something. I was like, I can't really see what you're trying to show me. Can you just come over here a step or two so I can see? And uh, he did. And right when he stepped over to where I was, bam, a geranium fell from the roof of an apartment building and landed on the street right where Sam had been standing, a pot of geranium. Things like that made us realize, and of course through all of the, the terrorism threats, we trusted that the Lord would protect us. But there were times when the Lord also used us to be guardian angels of other people, because there are many people in Paris that are tourists, that are lost, that don't know where they're going. And one night when I was walking home alone um, from meeting somebody, it was about 10:15 at night, I saw a lady who was clearly drunk and by herself and was just kind of wandering around in a daze. Now this being France, I didn't want to just go over to her and talk to her. I thought that might scare her. So I just stood where I was. I was about 50 yards away from her, and I just started praying, Lord, 
if you want me to help this woman, bring her to me. I'm not going to go to her. And I just stood there, and as I prayed, and I was kind of looking in the lady's direction, she did. She walked over to where I was, and then she just kind of collapsed on the sidewalk. And so I, I, I took that as an answer to my prayer, and I said to her, um, Bonsoir, où allez-vous? Where are you going? And she sit, just started crying, and she said, I'm lost, and I don't even speak French. And so she was an American, and I was able to, to help her. I said, okay, come on, come back to my apartment with me. It's too late for you to be out here alone. And as I was walking her back to my apartment, you know, it turns out she didn't have her cell phone. She didn't know where she was. She couldn't call her husband because she didn't have her phone. They'd gotten into a fight, and she'd run off. She'd run off because she was so, so upset. I said, do you remember the name of her of your hotel? And when she said, oh, it's the Marquis something Marquis, I said, oh, you're in luck, because that happens to be a hotel that I know where it is, and it's only five minutes away. So I was actually able to walk her back to her hotel and get her there safely. And before um, she went inside, I told her, I said, I don't know if you have faith, but I'm a Christian, and I believe that the Lord sent me here tonight to take care of you. And she, she started crying, and she understood that God loved her. Well, also, let's talk a little bit about Islam in Paris. Before I moved, right before I moved to France, I was in my bedroom, and the view from my bedroom is Colonial Lake. I looked out, and I saw an Islamic woman with a head covering walking around Colonial Lake. And I was scared. I was thinking, oh my goodness, there's a Muslim woman around Colonial Lake, and that means that there could be a terrorist attack here. That's the way my mind was working, because I didn't know any Muslims. I made the immediate association between a Muslim woman and a radical Islam. But luckily, in Paris, I had the opportunity for my mind to be expanded. My neighbor upstairs, the one that has the colorful um, hijab, is from Iraq. She was a wonderful person. She spoke English, and she was so pro-American. She's the only person in my whole apartment building, well, besides our American neighbors across, across our hall, but the only other person who ever invited me in for coffee or for tea. And then the woman who is um, wearing the black hijab is named Heba, and she's from Egypt. She had gone to a Christian school as a girl, and she actually joined our prayer group at school. And we were able to have wonderful discussions about her faith, and I told her about Jesus and what he meant to me. We became very, very close. Even when you're walking around Paris or you're on the metro, you're going to see so many Muslims. You, I was shocked by how many Muslims are in Paris. I just didn't realize. There were days where I thought, where are the French people? There, there are a bunch of Chinese, there are a bunch of Africans, there are a bunch of Middle Easterners. Paris is truly very international. And after living there a while, you realize that the people in the black robes are from like someplace like Saudi Arabia, they're Arabs. This man is from someplace like Kenya in Africa, and the woman in the hijab is from North Africa. So you become more familiar with them. But in January 2015, of course, we had the Charlie Hebdo incident, the first big terrorist attack in France while we were there, and it was truly the 911 moment for the French. It was also the time, I felt, where the target for the radical Islamic movement shifted from the United States to France. And it's continued to stay on France because of the cartoon of the Prophet. 
the, the magazine, Charlie Hebdo, is a satirical magazine. If you can think of Mad Magazine for grown-ups, that is what it's like. It makes fun of everything. Um, so they weren't picking on Islam in particular. They pick on everyone. But after the terrorist attacks, the Eiffel Tower was um, lit up with the colors of the French flag. But the, the mood around Paris changed. Everything felt dark and cold. People were afraid to go on the metro. There was about a week where the killers were on the loose, and you really wondered, you know, who's going to be next? When's the next attack going to come? Things have not, never were quite the same after that. And then in November of 2015, November 13th, there was the terrible second large attack at the Stadium of France and at the Bataclan during the concert in some of the cafes near the La, Repu La Republique area. This is an area where a lot of young people, like college age and 20-year-old people, go and hang out on the weekends. We were actually in Bruges that weekend in Belgium, which Bruges is a great city. I highly recommend it. But when we heard about this and we were outside of the city of Paris, we felt so sad, so heartbroken. We were thankful that we were safe and that we weren't caught up in it. But it was just like someone had taken a knife and stabbed me. Another bloody massacre in Paris. What, the next morning, we're still in Bruges, and we toured a cathedral, and I just felt the solemnity of what had happened. I couldn't shake it. I couldn't shake the sadness. When we came out of the cathedral, there was this man playing um, a box solo on the cello. It was raining that day, and even though I was standing under an umbrella, I couldn't take my eyes off the man and the cello, because the music was so beautiful and so uplifting, and it reminded me that God made us to be creative and filled with light and filled with love, and it just brought hope back into my heart. On what might have been one of the most sad and dark days, I realized that the world had not ended, and we still had to, we still had to walk in the light and do what we could. So several months later, there was the attack on the Brussels airport, another horrible, bloody surprise attack. And at that point, we were up in Verdun. We were visiting, touring this beautiful cemetery of World War I, an American cemetery, when we got the news about this attack. And if you've been to these cemeteries, you know they're so solemn, and they're so sobering, and they remind you of the price that we all have to pay for freedom. And it just brought home to me the severity of this situation and what might be the price that we have to pay in the days ahead. Now, fashion, it wouldn't be Paris if we didn't talk a little bit about fashion. No burkas, no burkinis, but you might see something like this, Marie Antoinette made out of chocolate, or John Paul Gaudier's exhibits, where there's a little bit of skin showing. Even the expats want to be chic, the people that live in Paris. And if you go to Paris and you want to shop, I recommend that you go in January and February or July. Those are the two times of the year where they have, they sold the big sales. Vintage is a great way to go in Paris. These two guys are wearing vintage. And to be honest, this is my, my, uh, my thing. I like to go in the vintage shops and dig through because in Paris you find all kinds of interesting things. And the prices are really good. 
here's Sam getting into the spirit of things, you find yourself changing the way you dress when you're in Paris. Here's a picture where I'm wearing a suede jacket that I got at the vintage store for about $35. Later, just for kicks, I went into the Yves Saint Laurent flagship store. There was one in there that was very similar. It was 2,500 euros. So I was very happy with my vintage find. Now, also if you're in France, you know you're going to be surrounded by art. And it just becomes something that you absorb as part of your life. You see it on the street, you see it in museums, you even see um, pop-up exhibitions in the metro. Every park that you go in is going to have statuary. When we came home and I saw how beautiful Colonial Lake was, I walked around the lake a couple times and I kept thinking, this is great, but something's missing. And then it occurred to me, there's no statuary. We had a one-year pass for the Louvre so that we could just come in and out at leisure and take our time. And I, and I began to really appreciate um, the, the antiquities in a way that I never had before when I was just trying to see the Mona Lisa or rush through to see the, you know, the top 10 things that you want to see. One of my favorite and most moving statues that I saw was by uh, Rodin. This is actually in Lyon, it's not in, in Paris, but it's called The Temptation of St. Anthony. And I just wanted to share this with you because St. Anthony had dedicated himself to purity and chastity as a monk, but he was tormented by sexual thoughts and sexual desires. And when he would have these feelings, he didn't want to give in to the urges, so he would go out into the desert and he would pray and he would fast. And Rodin has captured the angst of St. Anthony He's got on his monk's habit, and he's on his face before the Lord. And in his imagination, this beautiful naked woman is writhing over his back, and he's just praying to the Lord, give me strength, make it go away. And from the other side of the statue, you can see just peeking out of his monk's habit is his foot. And the marble is so smooth and so glossy compared to the burlapy look of his monk's habit. And you can see that this really is his Achilles heel. So um, sometimes the art is so happy and uplifting. This is one of my favorite pictures of the country wedding. It is the epitome of what you imagine if you were going to a wedding in France. The question that is often raised when you see things like this is, does art imitate life? Or does life imitate art? Which is it? And here is a crazy way of um, art imitating life. You see things like this in Paris all the time. Things that in America we would consider a little risque. The French think, oh, that's just normal. That's art, it's normal. Because remember, the French are intellectuals. They are thinkers. They are the philosophers of the world. And they're always coming up with new ideas and pushing the envelope. When you go around Paris, you'll see people of all ages are reading. They are huge readers. On the metro, they'll pull out books. In the park, they'll have a book. Even in the grocery store line, they'll be reading. And I got into the habit. And took a book with me wherever I went. I wish that in the United States that we were more like this. Now, 
now that I've told you so many things about our expat experience, you probably want to go to France. You probably want to take a trip yourself. So I have a few kind of random travel tips. I'm not trying to be a book here. I'm trying to tell you some things that you wouldn't know, uh, that I wouldn't have known if I hadn't lived there. So here's a great website, lefooding.com, if you want to find out about wonderful restaurants. Now, you don't have to write these things down because on my blog, Living on Jesus Street, I've created a page that's travel tips for France where I've put all these things and you can go at your leisure. There are also handouts over on that table that give you the name of the blog so that you can find it later. Okay, so just relax and enjoy what I'm going to tell you. So the best kind of restaurant, the kind that we liked the most, was the small family-owned fine dining restaurant where they might have about eight or ten tables in there. The food was always magnificent and they had something called le formule du jour, the menu of the day. The reason this was so great is that you would get three courses. You would get your first course, your main course, and your dessert. And you would, you would have a choice of usually two or three selections for each course. But the price was so much less than if you had ordered a la carte. We don't have anything like this in Charleston except during restaurant week. So the place that we like to eat in Paris, our favorite little place, we could get a three-course meal for about $33. But when we're, you're traveling around France, if you're not in Paris, you can get the formule for about 20, 20 euros. It's a wonderful bargain, and the food is delicious, and the chef is always putting the utmost attention into the daily menu. So I highly recommend it. Two of the blogs that I think you would enjoy reading, one is David Leibovitz, I mentioned him before, and the other is called The Secrets of Paris. Again, these are listed on my website, but one thing that they both recommend is having a picnic. If you're in Paris, you need to have a picnic. You can go to the outdoor market and buy your supplies. You can go to the boulangerie and get a sandwich to go and a croissant, a drink to go and a clear. That's usually about five euros for that. Um, you can go to the Monoprix grocery store and they have a lot of pre-prepared nice food. But just make sure you have a picnic in one of the lovely parks. If you're looking for a hotel, don't. Don't get a hotel. Get a bed and breakfast if you're traveling around France. The Chambre de Hautes are amazing. And if you pay a little bit more, you can get the charming Chambre de Hautes. They're still very reasonable and they all come with a wonderful breakfast. Generally it's croissant and homemade jams and the butter, oh my gosh, the butter in France is to die for. Here are some pictures of some of the Chambre d'Oats where we stay. So you can get the idea that these are so much better than any hotel. Okay, if you like to shop for antiques, if you like old French vintage things, if you see this word brocante, do not walk, run. Run as fast as you can. Or vide grenier. Vide grenier means an attic sale. So it's going to be a community of people that have come together to sell their things. Whereas a brocante is usually professional people who are selling things that would be really more on the antique level. Either one of these, don't miss them if you like this. Here's some pictures of the types of curiosities that you can pick up at a brocante. Also, consider coming to France or Europe for your Christmas holidays. 
several of the countries have wonderful Christmas markets that are, this is in Belgium, that are fabulous to visit. The airline tickets are cheaper during the winter, it's less crowded. So Belgium and Germany and France all have wonderful Christmas markets that you can visit. If you're looking for some place where they speak French, but it's rustic, you can get out and hike, you can go to the beach, it has resorts, it has great food, and it's off the beaten path, Corsica is the place for you. Corsica is a little island that feels like Italy, but it is part of France. So they speak French, they have wonderful food, but they're a little, they're, um, the attitude of the Corsican people is a little bit more like the Italians. They're very friendly and open. If you are looking for an off-the-beaten place to go in France itself, on mainland on the continent, southwestern France. Beautiful vineyards, great wines, they're very cheap. Wonderful monasteries, you can go and meditate, pray. Roman ruins. This is the Chambre d'Haute um, in Condon, in Gascony, where we stay. And the tiny little villages, some of them are medieval villages, uh, all of them are old and charming. Southwestern France is a real treat. So most of the time people ask me, do you miss France? How, you know, how's the life going now that you're back here? And I say, you know, to be honest, I am really happy to be speaking English again. It was a struggle. I love French, but it's just a relief to be able to speak English. Also, there were so many strikes, manifestations, this spring in Paris, that it, it began to make it difficult sometimes to even take public transportation, take trains, take airplanes. So I'm glad to have left those behind. We're also glad to come back to our church family and our community where we have roots and where we've known people for a long time. And with the national election coming up, I was reminded as I was watching the, the coverage and I was in Paris, I felt that keenly that I'm not a citizen of France. I don't really have a voice here. And it feels good to be back in a country where this is my home and I'm fully established as a citizen. So as I look back on our two years abroad, it almost seems like a dream, like a magical time. We didn't even get to talk about the chateaus. We'll have to do that another time. You guys have been a wonderful audience, and uh, if anyone wants to plan a trip to France, let me know. Un soir de pluie et de brouillard, quelques taxis passent sans me Le blues
Un soir de pluie 